This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at uctv.tv slash careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and those in career transition bridge to better employment. Hello and welcome to The Pulse, Issues in Healthcare, the podcast where healthcare leaders share their thoughts on the issues of the day. I'm Leslie Bruce, your host and the Director of Healthcare Leadership and Community Outreach for UC San Diego Extension. Today we'll explore a topic much in the news and a great focus of population health-based efforts. The topic is obesity, and obesity specifically in children. Joining me to explore the topic is Cheryl Motor, Vice President of Collective Impact for the San Diego Community Health Improvement Partners. One of the major initiatives that Cheryl oversees is the Childhood Obesity Initiative. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you, Leslie. Happy to be here. Delighted. So let's get right to it and understand the context of this work. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the obesity rate has more than doubled for younger children and quadrupled for adolescents during the past 30 years. Today, nearly one in three children are overweight or obese. What the heck is going on? Why this stunning increase? Well, a lot of it is uh, social norm change that has occurred over the last several decades. Uh, I think that when you and I were young, Leslie, which was um, a few years ago, uh, for example, you know, we could access things like sugar-sweetened beverages, sodas in certain places, um, in grocery stores or convenience stores or maybe gas stations. But now it's everywhere. If you think about wherever you are shopping, wherever you might be day to day, you'll find the access to unhealthy foods, fast food restaurants, um, a, a limited access to healthy, fresh, affordable foods really is the norm, not just here in San Diego County, but in our country. Um, in addition to that, we've seen a tremendous reliance on automobiles for travel um, and a reduction in physical activity opportunities. Um, this may mean that certain communities lack infrastructure for physical activity. Um, in a community like San Diego, you see a tremendous reliance on automobiles for our day-to-day travel, making you know active transportation difficult um, and not really affordable for many people. Um, Combine this with a sedentary lifestyle that we seem to have adopted over the last several decades, and um, and basically all of this adds up to higher rates of obesity. I think if you had planned the changes we've seen in our society over the last 30 to 40 years in such a way that you could um, plan for obesity, we would have done a good job looking back. Oh my gosh, isn't that amazing that you know we couldn't have done better if we planned it to That's right. for this this horrible outcome. And and so what are the consequences of having so many obese and overweight children? Well, children who are obese or overweight at risk for obesity um, really are, are going to carry that into adulthood. Um, adolescents who are overweight or obese at, at a rate of 75% will be overweight or obese adults. And the impact on not just the quality of life of these children as they grow into adulthood, but the sheer cost for us, both direct medical costs and indirect costs in terms of lost productivity in the workplace, for example, um, are, are really 
astounding. Mm. And we're paying the price for mm -hmm. overweight and obesity among children now, and we will continue to do so in the future. It's estimated that one in three children born after the year 2000 will develop diabetes in their lifetimes, wow. and about half of children of color will develop diabetes in their lifetimes. And uh, that's a tremendous price to pay, both in terms of quality of life and, and just sheer healthcare dollars. Sure, sure. That's shocking. Um, diabetes is certainly an expensive yeah. um, chronic condition to have to live with and to have to fund, quite honestly. So I understand that you're close to finishing the first ever State of Childhood Obesity in San Diego County report. That's right. And that will inform community leaders and I'm sure the rest of the citizenry how San Diego County is doing. So how are we doing? Well, um, there's good news and other news in the report. <laughs> <laughs> other news, I like um, that. The good news is is that we have seen the rates of childhood obesity and overweight um, uh, level off and in some cases decline overall over the last um, decade or so. Um, a study conducted by UCLA and public health advocates um, looked at rates between the years 2005 to 2010 and found that um, in 2005 the rate of childhood overweight and obesity was 35.8%. And in San Diego County, um, we will be reporting in our in our report that in the school year 2015, um, that rate has been reduced to 34.2 percent. And um, this shows kind of a, a small but steady decline. Mm -hmm. um, and this is during a time when other counties in San Diego or in uh, California have seen um, a either less of a reduction or in some cases an actual increase during the same time period. Oh, that's great. And and so we do rank better than other California counties, some others. Are there others that are we should emulate? Uh, yes, I think there are others we should emulate. Some, uh, some communities up in the Bay Area, for example, that um, have been um, more progressive in terms of their policy, decision-making, and so forth, I think. And, and you know, frankly, um, communities, counties that have um, a so higher socioeconomic level, I think, have seen lower rates. But I think overall, we're doing a great job. And we believe that our collective efforts through the Childhood Obesity Initiative are really making a difference here in San Diego County. Well, I certainly want to talk more about the Childhood Obesity Initiative and, and how you've been able to go about moving that dial as you have. Um, back to the report, though, first, I, w I wanted to see w what you thought were the most startling findings well, I mentioned the overall rate of combined overweight and obesity is 34.2%. Um, however, that really only tells part of the story. That's kind of the, the cover of the book, if you will. Mm -hmm. When we open the book and unpack the data, we, we find a different story and, and really some alarming results. Um, the data point to large disparities between white and Hispanic students, for example, with over twice as many Hispanic students um, being obese as, as white students. 8.9% um, of white students compared to 23.1% for Hispanic students. Um, 
And in addition, although two data points we recognize don't make a trend, um, between the 2013-14 school years and the 2014-15 school years, the overall rate of obesity went down by 0.2% for white students and went up by 1.4% for Hispanic students. So we don't know yet if this is a trend. Mm -hmm. um, we'll have new data for the current school year soon, and we'll be able to continue to track that over time. Um, in addition, when we look at the data um, based on economic um, disadvantage, this, the California Department of Education um, considers students who are eligible for the free and reduced lunch program or whose parents have less than a high school education um, in a category they call economically disadvantaged. And so when we compare students who are economically disadvantaged with those who don't, we see a very similar finding with, um, with about twice as many students in the economically disadvantaged category um, being obese mm -hmm. as those who are not. Um, we also know that substantial variation exists throughout San Diego County among different communities. Um, again, looking at school district data, we see a huge variation in rates of overweight and obesity from one school district to another. Um, for example, the rates are as low as about 15% at Coronado Unified mm -hmm. School District. A well advantage area. Exactly. Um, compared to uh, about 50% in national school district. And national is national <coughs> city? National city, okay. that's right. Uh -huh. um, and so I, I want to be clear, I'm not um, discussing the data to admonish or congratulate any individual school district. Mm -hmm. <coughs> um, but really to point out that schools don't exist in silos. They exist in communities, in, in sure. neighborhoods, mm -hmm. and um, many of these neighborhoods suffer, you know, social, economic, environmental, demographic, you know, um, differences. Mm -hmm. And it's communities really that um, <clears throat> have suffered the greatest in terms of years of disinvestment, limited access to healthy foods, um, limited opportunities for physical activity, where we see higher rates of obesity and other chronic health conditions. That's no coincidence. Mm -hmm. And um, and so it's important, you know, we, we know that, that schools can certainly do a lot to prioritize the health of students, um, but they can't do it alone. And mm -hmm. we really need to pay attention to the, to the broader issues in the community. A lot of problems uh, in a neighborhood or a community are laid at the doorstep of the schools. Yes. Uh, they do have an important role to play, but it's mm -hmm. not only up to them to solve this problem. Right. These social determinants affect everyone. It's exactly. not just any one group. And, um, you know, it's very interesting how this is all tying together with overall health, you know, of entire communities. Um, and as a result of the the social and economic environments that, that people are raised in. That's right. Um, so what is the childhood obesity going to do as a result of these findings? I realize the report isn't out yet, and you probably don't have time to put an action plan immediately and, you know, um, until people have a chance to digest this data and the new findings. But, you know, how will you proceed after that? It's important to us that uh, all children have the opportunity to be healthy no matter what community they're living in. Um, <clears throat> this report with a focus on these health disparities I think will give us a renewed focus to be able to ensure that our efforts are having the greatest impact in the communities where we have populations um, that are at higher risk. And our, our leadership council, which is sort of our board that guides and directs our efforts, mm -hmm. is, um, is taking this information very seriously. And I think that as we move forward, it will give us more impetus to be able to ensure that our efforts affect all children um, in an equitable manner. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, I know that the Childhood Obesity Initiative functions through various domains <clears throat> to get its work done. Tell us about that. Well, our infrastructure is such that we recognize there are seven key sectors or domains, as you mentioned, that we feel have the greatest influence on creating healthy policies and environments and ultimately impacting um, childhood obesity. Um, these include local government, healthcare, schools, uh, early childhood providers, community, business, and media. And so we have active uh, work groups that um, are very specific um, and that meet regularly in, in each of these areas. Uh, these are really thought leaders in the community uh, who bring together their peers and colleagues to address obesity using the strategies that are outlined in our countywide childhood obesity action plan um, to carry forward. And so um, these these domain work groups serve as really mini think tanks mm -hmm. um, and really are making sure that their their activities are representative of um, kind of the newest and the latest in the field, mm -hmm. um, but also they're able to focus very specifically on their individual domains mm -hmm. um, because they're experts in their areas. So give us an example then of what one one of the domains is doing, you know, whether you pick, whether it's healthcare or schools or, wh or whatever. Give us an example of, of the work that they're doing. Um, well, you mentioned healthcare and schools, so I can single them out. Um, our schools and after-school domain is very active in assuring that um, the wellness policies that are that are federally mandated by all public school districts um, uh, that they are strong. That, they're, um, that they sort of have teeth and that they're well implemented. And so one of the things they've done is to develop a program called the District uh, Representative Program where they have liaisons that work in between the, um, the domain work group and all 42 districts in, throughout San Diego County. Um, these district representatives are volunteers who serve as um, kind of support and provide technical assistance. Many of them serve on district wellness councils to mm -hmm. be sure that, um, that the districts are working as effectively as they can to implement these wellness policies at the individual school level. Um, Another thing the school's domain has done is to take the information contained in these wellness policies, um, put them up on our website in such a way that they can serve as a resource for other districts so mm -hmm. that each district doesn't have to recreate the wheel. Um, they have um, really highlighted best practices in this way, mm -hmm. and this kind of, you know, kind of coordination um, makes it easier for districts to uh, effectively implement wellness policies. Um, our healthcare domain has done some amazing work. Uh, right now, we're working on a pilot project that um, we're looking for funding for, actually, um, which will address the social determinants of health. Um, it's a program where we are working with multiple partners, including 211, American Council on Exercise, UCSD, and, and others, uh, Rady Children's Hospital, um, to um, create a referral program um, a bi-directional referral program so that children who are identified as being overweight or obese at their pediatrician's office will be um, proactively contacted by a representative at 211 who's specially trained as um, as a health coach and they will the families then will be contacted and connected directly to not only obesity prevention counseling and so forth but also um, to determine 
um, what other areas of need they might have. I mean, a, a mm-hmm. family, for example, who is having trouble just putting food on the table, who's suffering from food insecurity, um, is is probably not going to have um, childhood obesity as their primary focus. Sure. They have other more important needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really looking at connecting them with ref- with um, referrals that can address their social determinants of health needs, um, along with setting some goals around um, uh, reducing obesity among their uh, the children in their family. That's that's exciting. Very exciting. So when do you hope to launch? I mean, I mean your funding is contingent, but um, do you have a, a target date? Um, we are hoping to get that started within the next few months, and um, we've been working with partners. Um, everyone's come to the table voluntarily because we're so excited about this project, and, um, and um, we're looking forward to getting that started. Um, there's this real movement, I think, not just locally but in the country, to advance what is called um, the clinic to community connection. I think, uh, you know, with more recognition about the social determinants of health and how they affect other, you know, chronic diseases Mm -hmm. um, and community health in general. And longevity. uh, Exactly. There's a real effort to to have clinicians kind of address that. At the same time, we realize that their time is limited. And um, and so we're trying to find a way that will make it easy for clinicians to address those kinds of needs in the the office, um, but then to have the actual referrals and ongoing support for the families happen um, from a different organization. In this case, two one one. That's that's wonderful. It's advancing what we call um, we've coined a phrase that hasn't really caught on yet. So maybe you could help with that. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's encouraging clinicians to practice what we call community competency, which is really helping clinicians understand that they're never going to solve this problem of obesity one patient at a time, Mm -hmm. um, that really they need to be more aware of um, both the assets, but also the barriers that their patients face in their day-to-day lives and in their neighborhoods in, in which they live. And, um, you know, it's a lot to put on clinicians, so we're trying to find a way um, to make it easier for them, but also address these more basic needs that their, that their patients may have. Well, interestingly enough, of course, you know, um, p- um, our students, for instance, you know, our undergrads and even grad students who want to become physicians on the new MCAT, the new entrance exam, is a lot of testing about community competency. And so it's, you know, it's certainly um, a new awareness that they, that, and we have a whole course in that, as a matter of fact, um, in the sociological, psychological, and biological foundations of behavior. And it's all aimed at understanding the entire context of a person, not just their symptoms when they walk in. And again, that's for clinicians. So it'll take some time for that to bubble up to the top. But I think, you know, the efforts that you're doing to help educate clinicians is is certainly um, valuable and um, hopefully be easier in the future. Um, so l- let's go back to the Childhood Obesity Initiative as an initiative of a larger organization, and that's the Community Health Improvement Partners, where you work. Um, that organization has done such great work for so long, and I want our listeners to understand what it is and what it does. 
Can you explain a little bit for them so they know where this important initiative is housed and how that works? Sure. Well, Community Health Improvement Partners, or CHIP as we affectionately call it, Mm -hmm. um, was established over 20 years ago as a San Diego nonprofit. Our mission is to advance long-term solutions to priority health needs through collaboration and community engagement. And for for two decades now, CHIP has really become known as um, the key organization to convene um, initially healthcare partners around um, the community health needs assessment, um, but more recently around um, you know, collaborative initiatives that focus on these big societal health issues where we, we understand that not one type of organization or agency alone can solve them. And so um, using a collective impact model, um, CHIP facilitates the Childhood Obesity Initiative, which is celebrating its 10th year, unbelievably, wow. this year. Wow, yeah, bravo. Um, as well as other um, other issue areas, such as um, suicide prevention, um, we have programs that are focused on mental and behavioral health, as, as I mentioned with suicide. Also, we have an independent living association working on affordable housing for those um, suffering from mental illness. Um, and we have several place-based initiatives. We have a, a reach a racial and ethnic approaches to community health project in western Chula Vista. Um, we have a, a heal zone project funded by Kaiser Permanente in uh, the community of Lemon Grove. And... Um, and then we address other issue areas such as um, access to care through health literacy um, and work on public policy. And, um, and those are just some of the programs that we're working on now. And I know a lot of these efforts that CHIP makes come as a result of the needs assessment that you mentioned earlier. Tell us a little bit about that, um, just so that people know that this is inf- the information is available. Well, the community health needs assessment is um, is now a federal mandate um, for not for profit hospitals. It used to be a state mandate long before mm-hmm. it was a, a federal mandate, and that's actually how CHIP began, which was to to uh, convene healthcare partners across the region to conduct um, a countywide community health needs assessment. Um, that needs assessment is now being conducted by the Hospital Association of San Diego and Imperial Counties. Um, CHIP is still involved, however, in providing um, some of the community input, which is a really crucial element of, um, of the needs assessment. Um, one of the programs we facilitate on the community engagement side is um, the Resident Leadership Academy. We initially began this program with some federal funding through our Health and Human Services Agency. Uh, back in 2011-2012. Um, subsequently, our role has become more to do train the trainers. The the RLA program, as we call it, mm-hmm. is an amazing program that builds the capacity of community residents to understand how and why their policies and environments in, in their um, neighborhood environments are really impacting health, and then more importantly, what they can do to advocate for healthier communities. Mm-hmm. It's um, a heartwarming. It, I, I encourage everyone to go look up the Healthcare Leadership Academy and to empower these citizens in usually disadvantaged neighborhoods yes. to fight for themselves and get grocery stores and get sidewalks and playgrounds and places for children to get physical exercise and activity and fun. Yes, the Resident Leadership Academy is a great program, and it's now being implemented, as you said, in communities 
um, mainly communities, you know, of need throughout San Diego County. We're training uh, community-based organizations and others to conduct um, resident leadership academy trainings. And we've seen over 500 individuals throughout the county be, be trained. Um, some of them have, have gone on to, um, uh, to make career changes and to take up leadership roles. Um, I just discovered yesterday that one of the Resident Leadership Academy graduates is, um, uh, I think, going to be mayor of um, one of our local cities. Wow, and so, that's fantastic. Um, and, and another is on the city council. So we're, we're very, very excited about, um, about this program. Talk and about making long-term sustainable change. It's true, Leslie, and I think that it's really a, a kind of um, grassroots to treetops approach that, mm-hmm. that we try to take. We recognize that, that real um, fundamental change in, in policies and environments in a county the size of San Diego is, is not possible with, with just one of those approaches. Mm-hmm. We, we need community residents working on the ground um, to do advocacy. We also need decision makers um, really educated and primed to be able to make changes within their own communities and jurisdictions as well. Exactly. Well, um, I understand that the Childhood Obesity Initiative is now considered a national model. Um, tell us about that. I mean, what are you doing in, in the way, in the terms of educating other communities um, um, based on your experience? Well, we, um, we've been highlighted by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as um, a good model of collective impact. and What does um, that mean exactly? Uh, collective impact is a, a model of collaboration that recognizes that any large societal change that, um, that can happen really can't happen um, with the participation of just one or even a few types of organizations or agencies. And so uh, it recognizes that you need a broader approach and um, there are kind of five key elements to collective impact. One is that you have a shared um, vision or, or mission that is agreed upon, developed and agreed upon by all of your partners across multiple sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is that um, everyone does what they do best, but they do so um, in a coordinated manner with this shared vision in mind. So mm-hmm. mutually reinforcing activities. Um, the third is continuous communication. So the meetings that we hold, both the domain work group meetings as well as our leadership council meetings that they've been meeting for um, over 10 years now, uh, really having this kind of fundamental face-to-face, regular, ongoing communication with each other is really fundamental. Um, the fourth element of collective impact is um, shared measurement systems, and that's kind of where we're at with our childhood obesity report. Oh, sure. And data is king. <laughs> everything, we want everything as much as possible to be data-driven, mm-hmm. um, although we have some challenges in that area. But um, the, the fifth element of collective impact is having um, what is referred to as a backbone organization, mm-hmm. um, having an organization whose role it is to kind of be the air traffic controller for all of these activities to recruit and retrain, retain partners, to um, manage resources, and um, to really kind of be, you know, the, the wheels behind the scenes that are, that are always humming and, and turning. Um, and so uh, one of the reasons why we've been successful, I think, with the Childhood Obesity Initiative is that we have tremendous partners 
partners who are extremely committed to the shared vision we've created together. Um, many of these partners have been coming to the table for over 10 years now, and, and I think it, it would be um, hard put to think of any other initiatives that have lasted that long with this degree of enthusiasm that we see among the partners. Um, but I, I do think that CHIP's role as the backbone organization for this initiative has also been um, a crucial factor, as well as the support of our funders like uh, the County Health and Human Services Agency um, and private foundations such as you know Kaiser Permanente and, and in the past the California Endowment as well. Oh, that's that's very interesting because um, I was wondering a, a little bit about the the partners, given that you describe um, CHIP and the Childhood Obesity Initiative as a public-private partnership. Yes. So, um, and given the the vast variety of organizations with whom you work in your domains, I was wondering, you know, who funds this effort, and and I think the endowment and Kaiser Permanente and. Um, the county are are two good ones. Are there other partners that um, people might not expect to be involved in this work? Well, I will point out that all of the partners, with the exception of the paid staff at CHIP, are at the table voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they're providing in-kind support. Every single organization, every single individual of the hundreds who've participated in one way or the other with the Childhood Obesity Initiative um, are, are supporting this initiative and providing, you know, a different type of resource. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, funding for the COI is really an, one of our ongoing challenges because not many funders really understand collective impact broadly and more specifically understand the role and the importance of the backbone organization and how much more you can achieve mm-hmm. when you have um, people working behind the scenes to make sure that the that the initiative stays stays strong. Do you think that with the, the new emphasis, it's not terribly new, but it's gr- new and growing, emphasis on population health and um, where um, our health systems have to keep populations healthy, what, there will be a renewed or increased interest in helping to support the, this effort? We're hopeful. I think we, we have seen some um, signs of progress. Um, for example, uh, you know, the requirement for, for many hospitals to conduct community benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we're seeing a broadening of... Um, the definition of community benefit and I think there's a growing recognition that that making changes in things like uh, like our local food system for example will ultimately have a positive effect on um, on population health and on chronic diseases like obesity and diabetes um, one of the exciting things for me is to have seen the emergence of different um, programs and projects um, that really got their start and were incubated in the Childhood Obesity Initiative. Um, I mentioned that CHIP facilitates, in addition to the COI, the two place-based initiatives that are very much focused on the COI model of, you know, kind of multi-sector collaboration. Uh, the work we're doing in Western Chula Vista, for example, brings together um, four domains, early childhood, schools, local government, and healthcare. Um, they're all working together, but each doing, you know, their part in really moving the needle mm. um, on improving policies and environments in, in Western Chula Vista. It's exciting. Um, yeah, it's very exciting. We've also seen um, 
Another program that CHIP facilitates is a really robust and growing um, food systems um, initiative. And we at CHIP facilitate um, two important groups. One is the Farm to School Task Force, where we have um, about half of the 42 school districts in San Diego County working with us very effectively. We bring together food systems directors with local growers and um, and food distributors that work with school districts to um, to encourage more purchase of locally grown produce and this effort um, has been tremendously successful and and really um, serves to um, to have a triple bottom line effect um, increasing you know nutritious foods that are offered to kids through the school meal program um, ultimately you know um, improving their nutrition so with a health impact. Um, we're encouraging purchase of sustainable foods, so there's an environmental impact as well. And um, and this increase in purchase of locally grown foods also has a great um, economic impact on our agricultural economy sure. here in San Diego County. Sounds um, like a win, 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 win. It win. is a win, win, win. Yeah. yeah. Um, we also uh, facilitate the nutrition and healthcare leadership team, which is a similar group of hospital mm-hmm. um, food systems folks who have really come together and committed to the shared vision of healthier food in hospitals. And um, that has to be a popular idea. Well, yeah. it is. Um, we've seen um, facilities like Kaiser Permanente, for example, completely eliminate sugar sweetened beverages um, from their cafeterias, and mm-hmm. so um, and increasing um, increasingly they're serving either less meat or more meat that is um, antibiotic free. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of changes that we've helped to facilitate. Well, that you you bring up something else I had in my mind with the with the sugar free drinks um, um, or non sugar sweetened. Now seven cities. I'm, you know, back when Michael Bloomberg tried to pass soda tax in New York City, he was mocked unmercifully. But seven cities have now passed soda taxes to discourage consumption and raise money for good causes, like early childhood education, in the way we did with First Five, um, and using tobacco taxes to fund early childhood education. Can you see COI or CHIP recommending that approach in San Diego? Well. Yes, and we have recommended that approach in San Diego and statewide. Um, we're very encouraged by um, uh, this development in, in the recent elections earlier this month. Mm-hmm. And to see these cities really adopt um, a sugar-sweetened beverage fee or tax, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, you know, you mentioned something really important, Leslie, and in, in having worked back in the day on, you know, tobacco control issues when the very first tobacco tax was passed here in um, in California, um, we know that passing um, attacks on items that are detrimental to health is, sends an important message. Um, but more importantly, I think it um, it does two other things. It reduces consumption, uh, which has been proven in Mexico, where they it was one of the first countries to adopt a, a nationwide um, tax on soda. Mm. And in, in Mexico, they have seen continued reduced consumption with even greater reduction of consumption among um, at-risk populations and low-income populations, um, but in also an increase in consumption of, of water and healthy beverages. So mm-hmm. that's very positive. Um, but in addition to reducing consumption, it also creates um, funding for ongoing support for 
um, obesity prevention programs and activities. Mm -hmm. Some are school-based and others more, you know, kind of public health focused. Um, but it, it really, to me, that's one of the most important aspects of, um, of a soda tax, and we're very supportive. You know, it's interesting because there's several documentaries out about sugar. I'm, I would imagine you've seen probably all of them. Um, but what is interesting is how sugar has increased in everything we eat, mm-hmm. where it didn't used to be there at all. Now it's there, and, and the amount of it grows, it seems like, you know, continually. continually. So um, in, in some of these, you can see that the sugar industry is trying to cast doubt on the science um, regarding the connection between sugar and obesity and sugar and diabetes and things like that. And it, it seems all too familiar to the tobacco, the big tobacco um, approach. And there is this, um, you know, th- this phrase that sugar is the new tobacco. What do you think about that? Well, just as um, cigarettes are nothing more than a nicotine delivery system, mm-hmm. I would say that soda is nothing more than a sugar delivery system to the, to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, the average American consumes 45 gallons of sugar-sweetened beverages every year. 45 gallons. Wow. Uh, in San Diego County, we know that um, 28% of children ages 2 to 11 and 61% of children ages 12 to 17 consume one or more sugar-sweetened beverages every single day. It one is or a, more. One I or mean, more, right. Oh. Um, it's, it's the largest cause, I would say, of, um, of obesity. It contributes to diabetes, not surprisingly. And it's really the number, eliminating sugar-sweetened beverage consumption is the number one thing that people can do, I think, mm-hmm. to reduce their risk for, um, for, for obesity and, and diabetes. Um, and we've seen the activities of the beverage industry very much in line with the activities we saw back in the day of the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. Um, their tactics are despicable, I think. Um, in telling lies, just flat-out lies. Um, you know, it, it's, it's ironic that marketing of sugar-sweetened beverages is very much targeted to youth, and particularly youth um, of color. Mm-hmm. And, and yet they're going to these very same communities um, to try to uh, engage them in efforts against things like a, a tobacco f- or a soda tax. fee or a tax. And... Um, And so, yes, I would say soda probably is the new tobacco, if we look at it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, However, we're very encouraged by these recent developments, and I'm sure many studies will be done. Um, I think that, you know, the the boon to communities, um, a lot of communities are seeing the dollar signs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and seeing how much money that they can actually raise through a soda tax. Absolutely. Um, And so that... We're, we're excited about this development. Yeah, it, and I, it seems that the momentum is it going in the right direction. It would seem. Always good. Well, before we close, let's talk a little bit about you. How did you come to work on this issue of childhood obesity? Well, <laughs> as I mentioned, I, I began my career I'm working in the area of tobacco control. Um, I actually worked for nine years at Sharp Healthcare. Um, I was hired initially to head up their smoking cessation programming there at Sharp. And um, because of my love of journalism, which is my educational background, I I ended up through one opportunity or another coming my way, um, becoming the managing editor of Sharp's monthly health and wellness magazine, Sharp Mm -hmm. Health. 
and uh, I worked at their Center for Health Promotion at the time. Um, when my daughter was very young, um, I decided I wanted to spend more time with my family and help my husband out with his business, and so um, I left Sharp and became a freelance writer. I was doing a lot of grant writing mm. um, and technical writing. One of my clients was Chip. And um, Chip had been engaged through the leadership of Supervisor Ron Roberts and the rest of the board. Um, HHSA had hired Chip to uh, prepare the very first childhood obesity action plan. Mm. They wanted a comprehensive approach to obesity that would focus on policy, systems, and environmental change. And um, Chip engaged me at that time to really pull together the research that had been conducted and to um, produce the very first childhood obesity action plan plan, which was published in 2006. Shortly thereafter, HHSA um, had funding that they wanted to put toward implementation of the plan, and um, uh, through an RFP process, CHIP applied and was awarded the contract, and that was in 2006, and um, engaged me as the director, and it's history from there. Wow. Well, it must be incredibly rewarding work. Um, I, you know, I'm sure you have setbacks, too, but the fact that you're doing such a great and public good and helping to coordinate all these efforts, I can't imagine that other people wouldn't want to join you somehow if they could also make a career out of this. But um, if somebody wanted to work in this field, um, what would they? What would you advise them to do? Well, first I want to say that the most rewarding part of this job for me is the partners, is really having developed over 10 years time um, you know, deep and long-lasting and meaningful partnerships with individuals who are fully and completely committed to reducing and preventing obesity through their day-to-day work and in their work with the COI. Um, We have a saying with the Childhood Obesity Initiative that everyone has a role to play because everyone has a stake in the outcome, which Mm -hmm. is healthier children and families. And the good news, Leslie, is that because we work across so many different sectors, um, I really believe that to be true. It really, you know, it isn't just people who want to go into the public health field Mm -hmm. who can work on this issue. Whether you're working in a local government or municipality, whether you're a a planner or someone who works for a city in in another capacity, um, whether you're working in the area of transportation, whether you're a teacher or a principal or a school administrator, um, you know, an early childhood provider, really across the board, there is a role for you to play. And I encourage people to really go onto our website and look at the Childhood Obesity Action Plan. It outlines hundreds of strategies across these seven domains. And I can guarantee you that virtually anyone who goes will find something that interests them and an area where they really can make a difference. Um, We talked about community residents advocating for changes in their neighborhoods. um, And I think no matter who you are, there's really a role for you to play in this work. Well, that's absolutely wonderful and, and uplifting. It's nice to know that everyone can c- contribute. So um, thank you, Cheryl. I really appreciate your being here. And, of course, we all wish you every success in your efforts because they affect us all. And I want to also thank our listeners um, who are welcome to send me ideas at careerchannel at ucsd.edu with any suggestions they have for guest interviews. For now, however, this is Leslie Bruce saying here's to your health.